book of Ezra is about this. Verses or chapters 1 through 6, it starts out where the children of Israel who had been sent away from the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, into the land of Babylon. It was basically as a result of a judgment that God brought upon them. Sixty years after being in in, uh, exile there in Babylon, God graciously brought them back from the land or a remnant of the people from Babylon of this exile back into the land. So around 50,000 people returned. It was under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel. During this time, they rebuilt the temple that had been laying in ruins. Uh, Come to about chapter 7. There's about 67 years that transpired between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So it's almost like a second part of the book or a part 2. And so there's this time lapse of around 67 or so years. That comes into the scene. It basically picks up at around in the area of Babylon. This is under the leadership of a guy named Ezra. He's actually the author of the book. He has a new desire. He's stirred in his heart to bring back a similar amount of people that the first return of exile brought about. So around 40,000, 50,000 people are going to return from Babylon into the land of Israel. So again, this is sort of the second wave of returnees or refugees from Babylon into Israel over around a 70-year period of time. And uh, when he returns, he's going to be going for the purpose of basically building up the people there, making sure that they're strong, making sure that they love God, helping them, encouraging them, making sure that the group of people are doing healthy, walking strong with God. As he, in chapter 8, makes his trek, so chapter 8 is all about basically his journey from Babylon into the region of Israel. He comes, chapter 8 finishes up where he offers these sacrifices to God. Chapter 9 and 10 is what we're going to be looking at today, is where he basically is confronted with some bad news when he returns to the people of Israel. He's going to get angry. He's sort of the pastor of the church. He gets very angry, basically makes some very harsh statements that are going to essentially rebuke the entire church. Everybody's going to repent, and that's how the book's going to end. So I'm going to pray. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. That's what it's going to be like. Um, And then we'll get to work on the larger chapter. All right? Father, right now we want to ask you for your blessing. We ask you that you would come and open our eyes, help us to see uh, what it means to walk with you, help us to see what it means to have your heart, Lord, we are a church that is on journey, much the same way that Ezra was on journey. Um, Father, we want to be a church like Ezra was, the leader of a church, to see the health of the people so that the body of people there who represent you would represent you well, that they wouldn't send confusing messages to the world. We too, Father, we don't want to be sending confusing messages to the world by a lifestyle that is not congruent with what we believe and with what we say. So we ask you right now, Father, that you would help us. Let your word speak to us. Let it be a light into our path, lamp into our feet. And we just commit it in your hands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to basically jump right in. So if you would, chapter 9 is where we're going to pick it up. Verse 1 says this. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and they said... The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, they've not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Amorites, Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be their wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race 
has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, and the faithlessness of the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. So here's what's happening. Ezra gets back to the land. He offers his sacrifices. He returns the gold, the money that he basically brought from this journey, back to the priest. Um, everything seems to be going okay. A couple days go by. And by the third day or so, a handful of people come walking up to Ezra. They're like, listen, we've got really, really bad news. The group of people that returned some 60 years earlier, who settled in, who built houses, who were part of this original movement 60 years earlier, really bad news. They have not taken heed to God, and they've not esteemed God's word. They've not protected the family. They've not kept sacred your word. What has happened is that the people uh, of Israel have intermingled or intermarried with many of the various tribes of the region. Uh, hence the names of the Jebusites and Perizzites and Ammonites and Moabites and Jebusites and the Canaanites. And all of these are basically tribes of people that lived in the region. And they basically represented groups of people that did not worship or serve the living God. Um, you, you can sort of think of it was like the Wild West. And all of these people lived under sort of a patriarch. The patriarch was the father of the family. For example... Patriarch of the family of the Moabites would be a guy by the name of Moab. That was the great, 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 great grandfather who basically started the tribe. The same is in Semitic history, Jewish history. The Jews are basically called the are called Israel. They're called Israel because, or Israelites, because one of the fathers that they take all of their tribes back to was a guy by the name of Jacob, and his name was changed to Israel. So, hence, they're called Israelites. So, what had happened is you have the Jews living in the land of Canaan. They follow the true living God. They have the Torah. They follow the rites and the rituals and the traditions handed down to them from generation to generation, ultimately dating back to Moses. And as being God-fearers, worshipers of the one true living God. They were monotheists. The rest of the peoples of the land, rest of the peoples of the region... Uh, identified by these varying tribes were not monotheists. They were polytheists. They worshipped pagan deities. They worshipped uh, false gods, animation, um, all sorts of types of worshipping uh, pagan gods and whatnot. And what had happened was God says, I don't want you to intermingle with the tribes of the people of the land. And the reason for this is because God, at the bottom of his heart, did not want his people to essentially lose the traditions, to lose the word of God, and to end up becoming a generation that was distant from God. In essence, what's going to happen here, or what has happened here, is within one generation, you've got to get this, within one generation, everything that was done, that was part of this amazing move of God, in which people were excited about God, families were moving forward in God, Children were being raised in God, but within one generation, almost the whole thing has just fallen. That's, that should shock us, because the reality is, we've been a church for 15 years now, and if we just simply do nothing, another 15 years could go by, and we can be just like any other dead type of church that tends to be sort of the cycle. And there are some principles about this that I think God is really concerned about 
And why Ezra's so troubled about this is because Ezra recognizes that there's more at stake here than just simply sort of uh, racial profiling. That's not what's happening here. If you read that and you think, does God hate the Moabites? Does God hate Jebusites? Does God have something against them? The answer is no. I mean, God hates the practices, yes. God, does, God loves these people. He wants to see them saved, just as God has always demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. In fact, to even go one step further to prove this point, part of the lineage of the Messiah is a gal named Ruth, who is a Moabite. Right? She was part of one of these tribes mentioned here. So my point is that God doesn't have necessarily a sort of disproportional hatred towards these tribal people over the Jewish people. However, the Jewish people are in covenant relationship with God. They're called to live according to the word of God, to love God, to be in relationship with God. And the way that they protect themselves is to make certain that the family does not erode. To make certain that the family stays central, to make certain that the family stays strong, to make sure that when children get older, they're not being married off to a local tribe, just to be able to better themselves in terms of way of bartering or trade. Because God says, if you do that, what will happen if you marry off your daughters to be wives or spouses of other tribes, then those daughters of Israel will end up one point beginning to worship the false gods of these other tribes. So this is not so much about discrimination against other tribes. Rather, this is more so about being concerned about Israel's apostatizing. God does not want his people falling away from him. And the real reason for this is because God loves his people. You've got to catch this. This is not about God somehow trying to stake his territory because he's sort of an insecure God. And if he's got people that are a little bit iffy in their worship of him, it kind of reflects upon him. God sort of gets a little bit of an ego trip, feels bad about himself. And so therefore God makes these really heavy statements saying, don't, a lot. That's not what's happening. God is God. He knows he's God. But God, as God, knows that he is the source of life. And as the source of life, God says the way that we keep life in this generation and make sure that life gets carried on to the next generation and that that next generation of kids, as they get older, that they pass life on to the next generation and to the next generation so that here you have sort of a patriarchal society where you can look down and see your great, great great-grandkids, should God give you the ability to still stay alive, what you will find is your grandkids running up to you, wanting to sit on your lap and listen to stories about God's redemptive acts from great, great, great grandpa. God says, that won't happen if you begin to marry out, if, if you begin to commingle the Holy Seed with all these other tribes. Everything will become commingled. Everything will be diluted. Everything will become confused. And God says, I, I want life for you. I wish life for you. I want you to be walking in the ways of life. This is equivalent in our day. Uh, in the New Testament passage where Paul would say, don't be unequally yoked together with non-believers. In other words, don't 
get yourself in this yoke, which is what was used to sort of, you know, oxen would pull to pull a plow. God says, don't get yourself in this yoke with other people that don't love me. Because what will happen is you will find yourself in a place where you will not be moving forward in the proper way. And therefore, I mean, it's equivalent to this. Persons or people that are married to, say, non-believers, this is tough. I talk to people all the time that are in relationships or married to a non-believer. And what happens is what's hard for them is they come to church. They want their spouse to come to church, but their spouse doesn't come to church. They want to talk to their kids about Christ. They want their kids to come to church. But what happens is the other spouse who doesn't love God, who doesn't really want God, doesn't, they, they battle about this. Yeah, don't make the kids go to church. You shouldn't be forcing that upon them. What is happening, in essence, is sort of this erosion of establishing God in the first primary community of the home. Here's what I want to try to do as we look at this. And this is sort of a little bit of a hint. I think what Ezra is mainly concerned about is not only the erosion of the community, because God's means of establishing His ways for generations to come was by having strong families. Okay, you got to catch this. This is the way traditions and the way uh, history has always moved forward, is by strong families carrying on traditions, and especially in Israel, to carry on these truths. Here's a kind of an example of this. You'd sit around a campfire. Grandpa would tell stories about God's redemptive acts. You would have these celebrations, like say Passover, and you would talk about, as you're eating this food, you would talk about how God redeemed our great, 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 great grandparents from Egypt. All right? And then that generation grows up knowing the redemptive acts from God, redemptive acts of God. Then they go on and they carry on the same tradition with their families and their children and their great-grandchildren. What happens is you've got generations. So let's say 150, 250, 350 years go by. And what happens is you essentially have the same redemptive stories or acts being communicated all the way through. And you got people growing up on the knowledge of God. But if the family's broken, if there's divorce, if there's sort of a redefinition of it, what you have is sort of this erosion of the community itself. That somehow, some way, you're not going to keep the momentum of God central for future generations to come. The second thing I think that Ezra's concerned about is sort of a hint that's mentioned there in verse 2. He says that they have taken some of the daughters to be their wives for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the land. So he refers to this as the holy seed. I think this is a reference to a bigger concept that Jews had with regard to this concept of lineage or seed in particular. And here's what I mean. As early as the book uh, book of Genesis, chapter 3, immediately following the fall of Adam and Eve, God makes his promise. And the promise, believe it or not, has to do with seed. He speaks to the woman. He says, and the seed of the woman, uh, meaning the child, the one day the offspring that's going to come forth from the woman, will crush the head of the dragon. And the dragon will strike the heel of that child. So all throughout that particular point in history, there has been sort of this future anticipation, this future hope that one day God would send this 
seed. And he'd come and he'd crush the head. So Jews have been waiting. Where's the seed? Where's the guy? Where's the dragon crusher? Where's the dragon slayer? Where's he going to come? When's he going to show up? And all throughout the redemptive history of the Torah, there's these little passages that kind of shape and kind of form this, this concept of what the Messiah or this dragon slayer will look like. They'll get little other passages that would say the seed is going to come from Bethlehem. And the seed will basically one day be a suffering servant or the seed. And there's all these passages that basically shape this concept of what the seed will be. Here's what I think. I think Ezra's probably looking at this. He's so irate because somehow he's thinking the Messiah. I think he's like the Messiah is going to be lost. It's going to be confused. It's going to be messed up. Somehow you've lost perspective of Jesus. And this is why he's so bummed. He's like, you guys have gotten so focused. And within one generation, you've lost sight of the Messiah already. This, guys, this is the problem that many of you deal with on a daily basis. This is a problem I've watched after 15 years of doing this. And I've watched in people's lives as they start out and they're passionate about God. But in a generation, something happens within 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, somewhere along the line. Choices are made. Jesus just isn't central anymore. He's just not the center of it all. He's not the one that basically defines their life. Jesus isn't being talked about in the home. He's not being talked about on their blogs. He's not being talked about in their life. He's not being talked about in everything about them. Somehow Jesus is just gone. He's vanished. I mean, you might have like vestments of religiosity and just doing stuff. But I'm talking about this reality of the Messiah. Is essential. That's what Ezra was frustrated about. He's like, you guys have somehow commingled. You've let down your guard. Somehow you've compromised. You've changed. You've allowed yourself to go after these foreign wives, and these foreign husbands, and you've commingled with them, and you've somehow just lost the beauty of the Holy Seed, the Messiah. But again, even in spite of that, God still moves. And that's why I say that even in spite of the fact of the commingling of feet, God still was going to send His Son. I think He recognized the reason why we're in Jerusalem, because the prophecies talk about that one day the seed, the dragon slayer, will end up in that city. And that's where He's going to reign as King, is on the throne of David. So I, I really think Ezra's thinking, all this has to do with the Messiah. Where's the Messiah? And all these Faithless people have just somehow fallen more in love with foreign beauties than the beauty of the Messiah. He's just bummed about it. He's just bummed about it. That's what happens. So what I want to basically say is, really throughout all of God's history, all of His redemptive acts have really been done through this concept of family. This was God's mean of securing and making certain that his truth would be carried on from generation to generation was really through the family. It was through a 
leader, uh, through a male who's going to lead the family well. That's why one of the reasons, if you caught into the te- or caught it on, caught on into it into the text where Ezra talks about, as they're talking about, you know, who caused all this whole thing to happen. He talks about was the priests and the leaders and the men of Israel. So who's the blame? I mean, who, who is responsible for this whole issue? It's the men. It was God's way of working this out was that it was to be the men that were to bear the responsibility of this. Now, I realize that our culture, this is foreign. I mean, I realize men in our culture, we just like to sort of uh, pass off responsibility. I mean, it's popular in today's culture to just for men to not really be owning it, right? I mean, this is why guys, all right, guys can go out with a girl for five years and never put a ring on her finger. You're afraid of commitment. You don't want to be responsible. All right? Sorry, girls. I mean, if you've got a guy like that, you might want to just consider breaking up forever. And, <laughs> the, I mean, the reality is, is if the guy hasn't made any commitment yet, the chances are, are pretty slim he ever will. I mean, I hate to be really honest with this and simply bold about this, but everything in our culture has literally created spineless men. I mean, this is why. This is, I mean, am I right? I mean, this is why men can impregnate a girlfriend and just bail and never pay child support and just split and never be heard of again. It's tragic. Because something in our culture has somehow communicated to men that it's just okay to be irresponsible. And what I'm trying to say is that that framework, that DNA of a man usurping that authority, not taking that authority seriously and applying it into a family, taking the role seriously of being a man in the family, leading his children properly, being the one who's going to lead and stimulate the spiritual growth in the family. You just have to ask, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Who's going to lead your kids? And people sometimes are like, in our culture, like, you know, that's why I pay a church to do it, right? Because I pay a church to take care, to make certain that there's good child care, that they're going to teach my kids. It's not why we have child care or Sunday school. It's not. The reality is the men have to feel the weight of responsibility. Sometimes guys are like, look, it's not my fault. It's not my fault my wife is the way she is. You know what? I realize there might be difficulties that form hardships in people's lives, in your children's lives. It may not be your fault. But it is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to dwell with her in understanding, as Peter says. To love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, as Paul says. It is your responsibility to be the priest in the home. To lead the kids. This is not just simply telling the guy to say, read your Bible with the kids, and if they fight the system, tell them to be quiet and just suck it up. This is about telling, having a man lead, but lead with a gentle love. This is about a man being able to know how to say, look, I'm sorry, I raised my voice, I was wrong. This is about a man who is able to bear the responsibility and lead righteously so that the next generation could know about God's ways. I mean, isn't that what you really want? I mean, don't you really want your kids to one day grow up and love Jesus? I mean, isn't that what you want? 
Nobody. Nobody wants their kids to grow up one day and to be rebellious and to be lost and to marry some thug. Nobody wants that. I mean, the bottom line is, is the way this is broken is by God grabbing, the whole, grabbing a hold of the heart of a person who's changed by God and says, you know what, I want the Messiah, Jesus, to be central in everything I do. I may have made mistakes, and I may not, may not be doing this right, but the bottom line is I want to do this right. I tell my kids this all the time. I sit down with them. I have study, Bible studies with them. We read books together. We pray together. I just sat down with my daughter the other day. She was having a problem with something. I, I said, here's the way that we're going to work this out. It's because Jesus gives us strength. We're going to go to the Bible. We're going to go to the Bible. And then we're going to pray. And I'm going to pray for you because I want you to be helped in this. And I want you to meet Jesus in this. This is a lesson in your life to bring Jesus into. That's what this is about. That's what you're in this world for. Because I want you to know Jesus. And this is a pleasure to do. It's not something that someone forced me, Brian, you've got to be nice to your kids. You've got to love your kids. You've got to teach them the Bible. I want to teach my kids the Bible. I love the Bible. I love God. I love my wife. I love my kids. Because I love them, it is my great joy to impart this to them. And this is what Ezra's concerned about. He's just like, somewhere along the line, Jesus has just sort of went, just went AWOL. He's just not there anymore. It's not because of his own removal. It's because people voted and kicked him out. This is not good. So here's what he does. So kind of go on to see this. He responds to this. In about verse 3, we see his response. And he says, And as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. That word appalled in the Hebrew is a really powerful word. It's a word that actually can describe a flower that's had its petals ripped off. You know, so here's what he's saying. He's like, I, I'm so bummed. I just sat down. It was almost as if all the life was just ripped out of me. And he says, um, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifices. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting with my garment, with my cloak torn. And then I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, and now he's going to pray. In verse 6, he's going to basically chronicle his prayer. Uh, it's an amazing thing when you read through the Bible and you see these guys that are just really trying to figure it out, make sense of it, and really try to just be committed to God. And they pray. So this is what you're reading here. This is just Ezra's real heartfelt prayer as he's uh, troubled by all this. He says, My God, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, oh my God. He says, For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt. Notice he puts himself amongst the rest of the people of Israel. Now, has Ezra gone out and married some sort of foreign woman? No. But he recognizes, I'm part of this whole deal. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm part of Israel. And so whatever is going to befall Israel is going to befall me. Whatever befalls me is going to befall my people. We're a community together. That's something we in the West, we have no, no way of understanding it. We are all rugged individuals. All right? That's just the way we work. And it's, it's, I think it's really for our worse all right we, we just don't understand what it means to do life together i pray that we as a church can learn that i hope we can i know we can i know we can because the spirit of god does 
God lives in community as Father, Son, and Spirit and Trinity. And I know that as we are being conformed into his likeness and image, we too will begin to learn to live in community. And so what he does is he begins to just identify, I'm part of this whole group. I'm part of the problem. And I love this because he's like, I want to be part of the solution. I mean, it is so easy. It is so easy and it's so popular today for anybody who has some sort of gripe or complaint to go on a Google, start a blog, and start complaining about church. All right? Good for you. Proud of you. You're able to just do what everybody else does, is complain. It takes no ability whatsoever to just see people and see their failures, see their faults, and publicize it. All right? But what it does take is it takes somebody who loves God, somebody who loves that which God loves, who says, I want to be a part of this work of God, and if that means I give myself for His cause or His purposes to help out maybe that which is deficient or broken, I don't want to do that. That's what Ezra does. He could have just bailed. He just traveled four months. The dude's tired. All right? He shows up. He's very excited to get to work. He's very excited to start seeing things happen. The first thing that comes to him is the worst news of all possibilities. All right? It's basically equivalent to the whole church went apostate. All right? That's really bad news, especially when you're excited about moving forward. That completely throws a damper on everything. That's completely raining upon your parade. That's just the worst possible thing that could ever happen. All right, but Ezra just recognizes, you know what, this is really bad. I could go back to Babylon, but I'm not. I'm committed to God. I'm committed to God's purposes. I want to be a part of the solution. And that's what he does. So he commits to pray. Verse 8, jump down there. He says, but now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. So he's praying, God, just revive us. Revive us. Help us to see things your way. Verse 9, for we are slaves, and yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O Lord, uh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded to your servants, the prophets, saying, and he's going to quote an Old Testament passage, the land that you are now entering to take possession of it is a land of impure, with, uh, is a land impure, with impurity, and the peoples of the land are impure, and their abominations, and they have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and neither seek peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land that I leave for you for an inheritance for you and for your children. And after all that has come upon us and for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you are God, you punish us less than our iniquities deserved. You have given to us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, God of Israel, you are just, and for we are left a remnant and escape as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and for no one can stand before you because of this. 
In chapter 10, in summary, he basically goes on and, and the people begin to join him. It's kind of this amazing thing while he's praying, while he's seeking God, while he's weeping. This large assembly of people come. Everybody gets on their knees before him. They begin to pray. They begin to confess their sin. And then Ezra basically says, here's what we need to do. We've sinned against God. What we need to do is we need to make this right. We need to make this right. And Ezra's proposition in order to make this right is he says, we need to have divorce. We need to divorce ourselves from the people that we've married. Now, this is kind of seems a little bit backwards. And I completely admit this completely sounds foreign to our culture. It seems uh, almost anti-biblical, right? I mean, Jesus comes along and he says, nobody is able or allowed to divorce except for sexual immorality, right? So you read a passage like this and you think, how does this you know, connect with the rest of the Bible? And I think what's happening here is you've got a guy like Ezra who's just trying to do the very best that he can, given the revelation, given the information, given the knowledge, given the wisdom that God has given to him at that moment, and respond. And he sees that the best thing that we can do right now is to separate ourselves. That means we need mass divorces right now. And that's what happens. He calls for this. And what happens is a large group of people end up doing this. The last few verses, picking up around verse 18, all the way down to uh, verse 44, which is the last verse of the It's just a host of names of people that were guilty of intermarriage. And it's crazy because the book ends just like that. It just says, this host of names of all the bad guys, of all of the people and all of their families that broke ranks with God and intermarried. But what happens is, is this idea that they did repent, they did make the steps to change. So what I want to try to leave with you is this, guys, is that, For us as a church, I want for us to feel the weight of this, to understand this. As we've been going for 15 years, as we've seen God do things over the past 15 years, what I want you to think about is not just simply here, today, in the next year. I want you to think about the legacy. I want you to think out 20 years from now. I want you to think about when your kids, who are maybe 4 years old, when they become 24 years old, Where are they going to be at? Where's their heart going to be at with God? Who's going to teach them? Who's going to model for them the ways of God? Who's going to demonstrate to them the name Father? Okay? Because I'll tell you what. One day they're going to get older and they're going to start thinking of God as Father. And all I want to ask for you men, are you sending confusing messages to them about that name Father? Because some of them, at some point in their life, may consider the name Father as it relates to God and be radically confused because their father didn't model it very well. Their father was very strict and rude, maybe even very self-righteous and religious, or very loose, liberal, and just did all sorts of horrible, sinful things. But any extreme that you talk about, what I want to leave with you is this, is to think about the future. Don't just think about the immediate. Where will our families be in the future? Where will this church be 20 years from now? 50 years from now? I'm not going to be here forever. If Jesus doesn't come back in 100 years and Calvary slows still going, I won't be here. Will the church be still sending people out to Ukraine and all around the world? Will that, will that still be happening? I mean, or will we be just some sort of small group of people with gray hair listening to some dude who's got 
like really trippy, cool looking hair on a guitar because that's what was really cool back in 2009. Is that, what's gonna, is that, is that where we're going to be? I mean, to be honest with you, the only way with, that we avoid suicide or destruction or death of a generation is by us recognizing that we take our responsibilities well. God's means of communicating the gospel is through family. And this is actually carried on in the New Testament. Peter talks about it like this. He says, you who were once not a people are now a people. He talks about it. You were redeemed, not with any of our proceedings, but with any of our proceedings. You are now part of God's family. He is. God is your Father. That means... If you're here and you're a believer, you're my brother and sister. We're a family together. I mean, I hope we feel that. And your sin, as the New Testament says, that Paul writes in Corinthians, your sin will affect this family. Do you understand that? We have to feel the weight of that. Because we tend to just think in individualistic terms that what I do at home does not affect anybody else. And that's the lie. That's the perennial lie that we buy. It does affect. It affects you. It will affect your children. It will affect your spouse. It will affect people in this church. It will affect the world because people who think you're a Christian because you name the name of Christ or every once in a while you go to Missing the Messiah. Jesus is lost. And what does Ezra do? I want to suggest to you, and I'm going to finish up here and have a worship team come around. Here's what Ezra does Ezra basically does four things. First thing Ezra does is Ezra essentially humbles himself, tears his clothing, tears, I mean, pulls all chunks of hair out of his head. I mean, imagine this. I mean, here's a guy, I mean, He's just like ripping hair out of his head. He's tearing his clothing, and he's sitting down astonished. What, what does that mean? What's all that about? That's, that's sort of a Semitic way of saying, I am feeling the weight of sin. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to feel the weight of your sin. A lot of us don't like to talk about this. We're like, ah. Can't we just do something else? Can't we sing like a happy, clappy song? I mean, can't we just talk about, you know, nice things? You're not supposed to talk about this type of stuff at church, really. I mean, I understand it's not popular. I understand people might not want to come back to church because they're like, it's just heavy. But you know what? I need you to feel the weight of this. It's heavy stuff. You're like, sin makes us feel bad. Well, that's good. It should make you feel bad. It makes God feel bad. It's bad. Sin is bad. And God says, I want you to feel bad about it. But our culture is one in which tries to inoculate itself against any bad feelings. So we do everything we can to protect ourselves and to make certain that in every instant, every circumstance, there's always something there to numb 
the bad feelings so that we can feel good. And that's bad. I need you to feel the weight of sin like Ezra. Feel it. Second thing is Ezra trembles at God. I know the popular Jesus in America is one where he's your boyfriend. We sing happy songs to Jesus. He's my boyfriend. Jesus is not your boyfriend. The Bible says that the voice of God, when it speaks, it's like a loud thunderclap. It's powerful. The Bible talks about Jesus and God in terms where His arm, not only does His arm sustain, it's gentle enough to sustain to hold up His people whom He loves, but it's powerful enough to break the cedars of Lebanon. I, I, I want you to feel not only the weight of your sin, but to feel the weightiness of how big God is. Tremble at Him. That's what Ezra does. The third thing that we see is that he turns to God through sacrifice. It says that he tears his clothes, he sits down, he's bummed, trembles at God, and he does this until the evening sacrifice. Why? Because it's at the evening sacrifice that the sacrifice is made. People have their eyes taken off of their sin and placed upon the sacrifice. And they begin to realize it's okay. God's satisfied. We're forgiven. This is an Old Testament prototype or picture or foreshadowing of Jesus. So what I want you to do is I want you, if you feel the weight of your sin, you feel the weightiness and the power of God, to also recognize how God has chosen to forgive us our sin is through Jesus our sacrifice. The last thing is repent. It's just as simple as that. Ezra says we need to change, guys. We need to break off what we were doing before, change our direction, change our course, turn our backs from the sinful practices, and turn to God. Change. Again, I know this isn't popular. People do not like to listen to this. But it's true. You say, that's kind of offensive, Brian. I understand it's offensive. But at the end of the day, I have to be really straight up honest with you. If Somebody's going to be offended. I'd rather be you who's offended than one day I'm going to stand before God and offend Him. I'd rather offend you and have you feel the weight of your sin, tremble before a God who is so gracious to provide a sacrifice for your covering. And have you turn from that sin and turn to God. Because at the heart of all this is God saying, I satisfy. Foreign wives don't. I satisfy it. Not foreign husbands. You want love. That's the heart of it. God says, I love. You want community. God says, community. Follow me. The heart of the gospel is that God says, come to me. I'll make it right for the cross. Jesus comes, dies, takes upon himself our punishment, our shame. And in turn, God gives us relationship. I call you, I urge you to consider your ways, your sinfulness. But more so, the grace of God that's quick and easy to forgive. Willing, not easy, it was hard. 
Jesus went to the cross. I'm going to pray. We'll respond. We'll give our tithes and our offerings. We'll sing some songs to God. I understand it's a little bit late. If you need to leave, please feel free. I'm not going to strap you down and make you stay. But we want you to feel this and to worship God. And if you've got things in your life, the best thing for you to do is to confess your sins, ask God to forgive you, to cleanse you. This is serious stuff, guys, because I understand some of you. What I'm most concerned with is some of you have heard this message over and over and over again, and yet you're not changing. I'm concerned for you. Because either A, or you are in such deception and rebellion that your life is being... I'm going to pray, worship, give our tithes and our offerings. If you're here, you need someone to pray for you, we'll have some people over there available. And we'll dismiss you guys in a little bit. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you're here. We want to seriously our ways, consider them, but even more so consider your ways, which were perfect. And which you provided for us forgiveness from our offenses, that we can come to you today, Jesus. This is why we love you, Jesus. It's because you first loved us and gave yourself for us.